From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's art that challenges stereotypes of indigenous people and romanticized U.S. history. There's policies in this country that were meant to eradicate indigenous people. And so to make a statement existence as protest is to acknowledge these things were meant to eliminate our culture, our language, our traditions, our people, and it didn't work. We're still here, we're still thriving, we're still moving forward. A conversation with artist Greg Deal as we walk through his Denver exhibition and talk about how he's breaking down those stereotypes in his art and what's giving him hope for visibility of indigenous people in the United States. Then, a doctor in Trinidad, Colorado, was among the first in the nation to regularly perform gender confirmation surgeries. A new book chronicles the history and generates discussion. It's really important to me to share stories of people who aren't traditionally represented in media. Haley Sanchez is on the CPR News public affairs team. I feel like some communities get forgotten really easily. And so my goal is to delve into communities whose stories are not being told in certain situations. Listen for the work of the Colorado Public Radio Newsroom every day here on CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Paintings line the History Colorado Center mezzanine in downtown Denver. At first glance, some of the images play into stereotypes of indigenous people. There are black and white photos of folks in regalia, cartoons, and posters. But Greg Deal is drawing on those stereotypes to break them down. The title of the exhibition, Merciless Indian Savages, comes straight from a line in the Declaration of Independence. The inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Greg Deal reading there. I met him at the exhibition. It was actually his first time seeing the display, even though it's been up since August. He lives in Peyton, Colorado, and because of the pandemic, there wasn't an opening celebration. So who is Deal? I am a... uh Oh, husband, a father, uh, an artist, a disruptor. Uh, Been in Colorado for about five and a half years now. And uh, I'm a human that has indigenous roots in the United States. (laughs) He's also a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe. The first image in the exhibition, it sets the tone. It's based on a Fritz Scholder painting that's in the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. Deal worked there after college. Like Shoulders painting, Deals shows a man with feathers in his hair covered in the American flag. It's sort of a, a tough one for me because the idea of a, a Native person wrapped in an American flag um, has uh, elements of uh, romanticism associated with it. And, um, and I don't particularly agree with those things. But the stiffness of the flag, the way that the flag is sort of draped, but there's, there's no folds, there's no wrinkles. It looks very stiff and, and uncomfortable. The discomfort of that is uh, meant to sort of counteract the romantic perception of a piece like this. So it's not really draped, it's almost constricting. Yeah. The idea of romanticism and American romanticism, like that's really important in this whole exhibition. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so much of indigenous existence is predicated upon the perception of non-native people. And if I can be frank, um, with white, you know, Euro-American people. 
and uh, the romanticism of the project that is America, um, because it, it, it was started as just like a project. We'll see if this works. And um, particularly the romantic nationalism that's based around those things, even from a historical context. Um, for example, uh, Manifest Destiny, you know, the Expansion West, the founding documents. Um, I mean, using the term merciless Indian savages for the title of an exhibition is meant to put a glaring light on the fact that these things are problematic from the beginning. And whether or not we're thinking critically about that ultimately informs how much we're buying into that romanticism. And uh, are we reconciling those things? Are we discussing those things? Are we sweeping them under the rug so that we can continue to, to you know, live our American lives in this strange place of hope? And, and not that hope's a bad thing, but, you know, there is there's a term that came up over the last four or five years of uh, make America great again. And I think that that sweeps a whole lot of things under the rug that doesn't allow for critical thinking about the foundation of this country uh, and ultimately where we're at right now. And part of what I think of in that American romanticism is also just the erasure of indigenous people from cultural and political conversations. Yeah. And I think your next art piece of art kind of get into that. Like, sure. So there's this series of paintings that are comic book style over here. Tell me what we're seeing. So this is a series that I've been working on called The Others, um, where I've reappropriated old comic book images from the 40s and 50s. Uh, the natives are either standing strong and making strong statements, or they're actually winning in a fight that's being uh, illustrated. And I've replaced the dialogue with um, lyrics from punk rock songs. Um, that's what I grew up with. That was what was important to me. And so the indigenous struggle, like some of the language, some of the vernacular is similar, disenfranchisement, uh, racism, inequity, you know, all of these things that are glaring issues within our society that we are kind of seeing come to the forefront with things like Black Lives Matter. And um, this is meant to sort of articulate that using a stereotype that is ultimately kind of uh, familiar to uh, Western eyes and coupling that with my own sense of ideology or at least the genesis of my own ideology, which has been really punk rock music. The last one's called That's Progress. It's from a, a band called DOA. It's a song about gentrification. Gentrification and Indian removal are not the same, but a lot of the vernacular can certainly cross over. Um, it just says you're evicted. It's time to leave. It don't matter if your family's been here 30 years with a, an indigenous person on a horse with a hatchet and a red coat um, about to be on the receiving end of that hatchet. Tell me a little bit about punk music and how that how you involve that in your art. Um, I think it, part of my evolution as just like a contemporary artist is pulling things in that are important to me as a person. I, I grew up in I grew up in Park City, Utah. It's a ski resort town, you know, a small town in Utah, um, where my sister and I and maybe two or three other people, you know, throughout high school were all people of color. And, uh, and which is not nothing to say of, you know, people who are identifying as being gay um, or lesbian or queer or non-binary or anything else. 
and just how stifling and difficult that was. So for me, it was always about skateboarding and snowboarding and punk shows and hip hop and which at the time, cause I'm older now, <laughs> like at the time those were seen as sort of anti-social movements that are actually quite social. <laughs> and so these are the things that kept me above the fray and helped me sort of stay on track and, and um, keep in perspective my own value as a young kid that was really, you know, suffering and, and having a difficult time. So to incorporate that into the work to me is sort of going full circle and coming around back to acknowledging the uh, the debt that something like punk music played to keeping me, you know, in a good place as a kid. I love that. And so much of your work, it's also, it's not just the stereotypes that we're seeing in comic books. You're playing with all kinds of stereotypes in your work. Sure. Why is that important? Um, I think speaking in a language that people understand is really important. And, uh, and whether that's visual language or, or uh, words, that these are the things, you know, like how can I explain the indigenous, the indigenous struggle to somebody that has never heard about the history of the indigenous struggle, who have no context, that believe that John Wayne and the Cowboys and Indians is, is like literal acknowledgement of indigenous existence. And these things are made up. How can I possibly have a discussion with somebody over the importance of our identity and the importance of the, um, the diversity of our identity and that we even exist or even that all these different things happened that have brought us to this point that really should be acknowledged uh, if they have no concept of what that even means, what that even looks like. That an indigenous person isn't somebody who's draped in buckskin, has a you know long hair and and um, and a headdress. There can actually be a lot of things in the intersection of sub movements like punk rock and skateboarding and hip hop, and metal and like all these little things have meant a lot to a lot of indigenous kids that are just trying to survive and trying to get through these these spaces that were really not made for them. And so stereotypes or the use of stereotypes is meant to use things that people are familiar with. So I'm speaking in a language that they understand. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're considering a lot about how people who are not indigenous are viewing your work. For people who are indigenous who are seeing your work, um, how do you want to communicate with them? I, I'm, I don't think I'm saying anything that another native person doesn't already know or doesn't already recognize. Um, this is twofold. I mean, part of it is to sort of buck the system that's been in place for non-native people to kind of see and be like, what am I looking at? Why does it, why is it saying this? Why is it doing this? But likewise for indigenous people, um, particularly my generation, and, and I think we're really fortunate in the generation after me are starting to come out of these things. Um, a lot of these things have defined our identities when we were kids, you know, that we're like, watching Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves and listening to Lakota language and connecting with that because there is no representation because that's the only thing that we have to gravitate to. And, and it's why you, you know, have a, a kid uh, that's native that wears like a Cleveland Indians hat because there's no representation. They're trying to connect with something. And so I think likewise, we're just seeing things that are familiar to our own experience as like indigenous people living in America um, and being able to 
take these things and flip them in a way that is empowering and also just informing various issues and things, which isn't necessarily my goal, but I think it's a, a certainly a residual of, of the work that I'm doing. And that positive representation, not representing people with negative stereotypes, that's also part of your work, right? Yeah, for sure. The title of the collection, Merciless Indian Savages, is lifted from a line in the Declaration of Independence. Deal's paintings challenge romanticism about American history and erasure of indigenous people. I asked Deal to show me a couple of his favorite paintings in the exhibit. He picked out one that he says stands out a bit from the rest of his work. Most of my stuff's been pretty polarizing up to this point, like very heavily defined. And uh, and I like this idea of creating something that is positive that you can connect with it. You don't have to be indigenous to connect with it. And I think that that's important. It's a poster style acrylic painting in red and black. Basically an indigenous woman looking up. Uh, It's meant to be hopeful. Um, It says rise above her head. Uh, She's wearing some fancy earrings, which for native people, particularly native women, uh, that's that's an important set of representation. But it is meant to be a piece that uh, anybody can connect with. Deal said the image has spread beyond art galleries. I was able to do a mural of this on the Red Line building um, off Arapaho uh, and um, in a couple of other places as well. And I think that that connection with it, you know, in terms of um, in terms of being able to uh, have something that's just simply has a positive message attached to it, it was new to me at the time. Then Deal led me to a painting with really striking juxtaposition. A man from an old black and white photo stares out from the painting with a bright red lightning bolt across his face. He has a spray-painted yellow halo behind his head. I think what I originally called a, like uh, an Indian Bowie, I think, is when I started. It, it's an image that I started in like 2010. It just like appeared in a couple of places. And I was having this discussion with my mom because we grew up with Bowie in the house. My mom was a big... David Bowie fan and um, and some of his songs remind her of me when I was really little and and so I started sort of implementing you know this sort of Ziggy Stardust lightning bolt over the face of a native person uh, who's a Western Shoshone man and um, and it's this incredible sort of intersection of pop culture and pop culture you know like those old black and white native images is very much a part of popular culture in America but adding in this like popular culture aspect of David Bowie. And and I think it's just this sort of beautiful thing of like taking something that's often considered as a relic and putting elements around him or on him that immediately put him into the present. And that the the relic is not really relevant in this, that the past and the present and the future all share the same space, which is an indigenous concept, you know, this idea that these timelines of old and new is very much a Western concept, that these things can actually all exist together and still exist together in, in relevance. Is this an Edward Curtis photo? Um, I believe it is. Okay, because yeah. it looks, it's like a very, it, it's the black and white totally. photo that we associate with. Totally. This is one of the ones that's most striking to me in here, too, because Edward Curtis, he was taking photographs of Native people at a time when the American government was involved in removing people from their land and instituting policies of erasure. And he's taking these very romantic photos. And so people like the criticism is that he is a big part of indigenous erasure. So to reclaim it like this, to have the photo of a person in like some traditional dress with a Bowie stripe across his face is really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and 
yeah, I, I had a moment where I was uh, essentially printing out these photographs large and placing them into spaces where they clearly are not meant to belong, contemporary spaces. And um, doing those in a way that is bucking that system. Uh, Edward Curtis, you know, he famously went out and said that uh, he wanted to uh, capture images of them because they're a vanishing race. These are... These are systems that have been set up and that have informed Americans, if not the world, about our existence within a very, very small scope. And if you look at, you know, the early or the mid 1800s, um, all the way up to now, it's 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 almost a completely blank slate. Like nobody knows what happened between that time and this time, which is why it's really easy to convince people that indigenous people don't exist anymore because we're not part of that popular discussion. Plains Indian Wars and then nothing. And there's a civil rights movement. There is uh, movements against, um, against uh, various things like mascots and erasure and now we're starting to see land recognitions uh the next step to land recognition is land back you know so where there's these things that have been going on and things that have happened throughout history uh for sterilization of indigenous women by the indian health services which is part of health and human services boarding schools and forcing kids into assimilation to quit their languages their traditions their 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 names they had to abandon their given names and take on christian names names like John and, and Dave and stuff like that. And so these things all happened between that time and this time. And now we're seeing the rising up of young people who are not just adept at, at, at traversing the world that we're in now, but are also heavily informed by their own identity from a historical point of view, from a community point of view, and moving forward to reclaim these spaces. Uh, but to the rest of America, I think it ends up looking like that we just popped up out of nowhere and did something because these things are just not taught about. And people sometimes use the wrong tense when they're talking about Native people that yeah. are here and people use the past tense. Yeah. And that's part of the stereotype breaking that you're doing here, too, is talking about the modern identity. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at the same time, if I can, if I can yeah. say this, like, I don't have an agenda to change the world. I am articulating the world that I see through my own eyes as a father of five children and who are all members of our tribal community, but you know, might not look the part that people would expect. Like, how am I gonna look at identity through that? Like, how does stereotype affect them? I know how it affects me, but I, I'm wondering how it will affect them. Making statements like this last piece that just simply says existence as protest is a statement that is meant to identify the fact that there have been policies in this country, going back to American democracy, uh, there's policies in this country that were meant to eradicate indigenous people. And so to make a statement existence as protest is in fact to acknowledge that these things were meant to eliminate our culture, our language, our traditions, our people, and it didn't work. It hasn't worked. We're still here. We're still thriving. We're still moving forward, if not actually gaining ground on a lot of these conversations and in the way that we're represented in history, in our cities, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Like 75% of Native people don't live on the reservation. And Denver itself has, I think, 30 to 40,000 um, people living in the city that are Native, that identifies being Indigenous. Um, 
Those are big numbers for a community like this. Are you making space for these people? Are you allowing these people to tell their own stories? What does representation look like? This exhibit, it's been up since August and it's been crazy year. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, this deals with the political existence of indigenous people in the United States, starting with the Declaration of Independence. Um, where are we at now? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think for the last five or 10 years, uh, land recognitions have become a pretty regular thing, especially in academia. Uh, what's the next step? If you keep saying the same thing over and over again, it doesn't mean anything. I always encourage people to, you know, donate to an organization that is enacting change. We have Deb Holland, who is the Secretary of the Interior, and uh, we have hope in those things, which is a weird place to be, you know, because there's oftentimes not been a lot of hope in those places. I have hope, but I'm pretty cynical about a lot of this stuff. Uh, and I try not to be, but it's hard not to be. But then socially, we're talking, you know, in the middle of Black Lives Matter, we're talking about uh, a, a new term, Black Indigenous people of color. We're being included in the conversation in places where oftentimes those conversations have been segmented out. And, um, and not through our doing, but just simply through the representation of those things. The American Indian Movement were running at the same time as the Black Panther Party, coming off the heels of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all of the movements that were happening during the Civil Rights Movement, which is alongside Latinos and worker rights, which is alongside Asian rights and gay rights. And all of those things happen at the same time throughout the country. But they compartmentalize those things to make them look like they're not together. And there's conversations that have to be had as a result of that. I think for the first time, at least in my lifetime, we're seeing those conversations at the forefront. And people are trying to be more comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I think that that's exciting. My hope is it just keeps moving forward. It keeps going and doesn't lose ground. Greg, I want to thank you so much for sharing your art with us. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's, it's good talking to somebody in person. That's Greg Deal. He's an artist from Peyton, Colorado, and a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe. His exhibition, Merciless Indian Savages, is on display at the History Colorado Center in downtown Denver through July 18th. You can also find photos of the paintings we talked about at CPR.org. When we come back, a doctor in Trinidad, Colorado, was among the first in the nation to regularly perform gender affirmation surgeries. A new book chronicles the history. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. About 50 years ago, the southern Colorado town of Trinidad was called the sex change capital of the world. It got that title because of a doctor named Stanley Biber, who performed some of the nation's first gender confirmation surgeries. Colorado journalist Martin Smith wrote a new biography of Biber called Going to Trinidad. It's provoked some controversy. Smith joins us today to talk about the book. Later, we'll hear from the surgeon who succeeded Biber in Trinidad and get her take. First, though, my conversation with author Martin Smith. Hi, Marty. Hi. Paint me a little character sketch of Dr. Biber. Who is this man? How does he end up in Trinidad? 
he's just one of those larger than life people that you once in a while encounter in life. You know, he's a former rabbinical student, um, concert pianist, you know, in his teens and 20s, who ended up in uh, Korea as a mash surgeon. And while he was there, he was dealing with a lot of lower body injuries. And he had spent a lot of time perfecting his techniques for reconstructing urinary tracts and reproductive tracts, that sort of thing. And when he got out of the military, he was uh, stationed at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs and found out they were the United Mine Workers were opening a clinic in Trinidad. And he signed on to be the general surgeon for Trinidad. And this is in the late 1950s. And he became the town's general surgeon. He delivered everybody's babies. He stitched up wounds. He, you know, he was that sort of guy. And add on top of that, two other dimensions of his personality. One is that he was a, a bodybuilder. He, he aspired to be an Olympic weightlifter. And he was about five foot four. And, you know, he, he just sort of looked round. He looked like a cannonball. So he had this sort of interesting physical presence. And, and the other aspect of it was that he, um, he wanted to be a cowboy. He, he liked Trinidad because it enabled him to sort of pursue the fantasies he'd had as a child to be a rancher. And he, in fact, by the end of his life, he was probably the largest landowner in Los Animas County. Wow. So how did he come to do his first gender confirmation surgery? In 1969, uh, a social worker came into his office. It was somebody that he worked with on cleft palate cases in the county there. She would go out and find the children that needed surgery for their cleft palates, bring them to his attention, and he would do the surgery. And at the end of that meeting with that social worker, the social worker asked him a favor. She said, would you consider doing my surgery? And, you know, he's a sort of very self-confident Mash, former MASH surgeon, says, sure, what do you got? I can do it. She says, well, I'm transsexual. And he says, what's that? It's not that he was unfamiliar with the concept. I mean, you know, Christine Jorgensen had already transitioned and become a media sensation by that time. So he was aware of, of the idea of it, but he didn't know the surgical techniques. But to his credit, you know, he committed to doing the surgery for, for the social worker but then he started researching and went out and found some fairly rudimentary drawings that he got from a doctor at Johns Hopkins and took a look at him and said, yeah, I think I can do that. And so he proceeded. And that was the first one he did. And he did it without judgment. And he did it without, you know, any sort of drama. He just sort of, it was surgery. It relieved someone's pain. And, and, and he did it. And word got around pretty quickly. And as far as the range of surgeries that he would perform, and this is somewhat for my own clarity here, do you know what types of surgeries he was performing? Generally, it breaks down into two-thirds and one-third. Two-thirds of the surgeries he was doing were uh, male to female, and one-third approximately were um, female to male. Your book, it focuses on two people who had the surgery. Some people have criticized you for choosing those particular individuals, and we'll get into that. Um, I do want to say that there is a robust body of evidence now that people who have undergone gender confirmation surgeries have overall positive results um, and that there is robust standards of care as well uh, for transgender medicine. But let's first talk about Claudine Griggs. Tell us a bit about her journey and what took her to Dr. Biber. When I started this, this project, you know, I thought, oh, my gosh, there have been 6,000 
medical pilgrims that came to Trinidad over those 41 years when it was the center of, of gender confirmation surgery. I've got tons of stories I can tell here. But in reality, one of the first things I learned was that transgender men and women are, are usually pretty reluctant to go back to a period of their life that was often painful and difficult. I wanted to be able to tell the stories of patients from beginning to end, from before their transition to during their time in Trinidad and their lives since. And very quickly, I settled on two people who had left contemporaneous records of their time in Trinidad, their experiences in Trinidad. And Claudine Griggs was the, the one that rose to prominence the most easily. And, and I used her in the book as, as you mentioned, you know, the vast majority of people who go through the surgery um, are satisfied and would do that surgery again. I, I figured her story was bold enough to, to carry that. Um, and so that's, that's the role I wanted her to play in the book. And there is a thread that goes through your story about the torment some of these folks have gone through as they were growing up. What were some of Claudine's experiences? Well, you know, she transitioned fairly early. I mean, she knew at the end of high school that she was a woman. She began living as a woman um, shortly into her college career, uh, began dressing and living as a woman. Yet at the same time, not too long after that, she was raped. I mean, she was, uh, she was dating a gentleman. Uh, well, I, I use the word gentleman advisedly. She was dating someone whose roommate invited her over and was waiting for her. Uh, they knew she was trans um, and they wanted to take advantage of her and did. And she told me that story reluctantly. It was a very difficult moment for her to revisit. But she had already transitioned. I mean, she, had, she hadn't had the surgery yet. I mean, she didn't have the surgery until she was in her late 30s. Um, but just sharing those moments of torment and, you know, I wanted people to understand the profound issues that they're struggling with before they ever arrive at a surgeon's office. You spoke with Griggs decades after her operation. What reflections did she have on the early years afterward and how it changed her life? Because as you said, she, was, she had already transitioned. One of the reasons I really enjoyed writing about Claudine is that she was so honest and so articulate about the struggle, you know, the ups and the downs. Uh, she struggled with depression, um, which is something she struggled with before the surgery. It wasn't new. But, you know, the realization that the surgery hadn't solved all of her problems, you know, it wasn't a silver bullet that made all her depression go away. She still struggled with depressions. If she had to do it over again, would she? She would. Uh, she, she definitely would. And I, again, I think that's typical. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. No, it doesn't solve all your problems, but it's the right thing to do. And I think that's the, the, the experience of the vast majority of trans men and women. Now, let's talk about the second person that you profile in this book. His name is Walter Heyer. Um, his story is complicated, and frankly, it's atypical for people who undergo this type of gender confirmation surgery. Again, let's start with the journey that gets him to Dr. Biber. What were his early years like? He came to Dr. Biber in, 1980, in the early 1980s. He was living part-time as a woman. He was, he was married at the time. He kept that part of his life separate from his wife and children. He was doing it secretly, um, and which is a kind of a red flag for anybody that understands the transgender journey. He came to Dr. Biber 
He signed up for the surgery. He went for his interview with Stanley Biber. He decided, no, this wasn't right, and he backed out. Uh, he came back two years later after he had separated from his wife and went through the surgery. The problem was that he was never gender dysphoric. Uh, he was misdiagnosed as gender dysphoric by a therapist in San Francisco and was, in fact, dissociative. Uh, he had multiple personality disorder. That's the common name for it, for what's called dissociative disorder. And therefore, surgery and hormone therapy and transition was never going to solve the problem that he had. And what followed were three or four decades of Walt struggling of, with mental illness, flipping back and forth between male and female personas. And, and he eventually married uh, and is living as a man now, and which is why I use male pronouns for him, because that's what he prefers, that's what he does now. He is now involved in something called the sex change regret movement, where he actually advises people against going through with surgery. But again, I think it's important to keep in mind he is atypical. The fact that he has become as outspoken as he has has made him a lightning rod for the LGBT community. And I think it's fair to raise the question of why would I include him in this book? And the reason I did is because as a storyteller, I needed somebody to say out loud the things that people who don't come from the LGBTQ world are thinking. You know, what if I do this and I regret it? I knew that was going to be a controversial thing. Um, and I, I'm still comfortable with the decision I made. I, I, I think it's, you know, for the story I was trying to tell, like I said, you, see, you need the guy to say out loud the things that other people are thinking so you can start to deal with those issues. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from Biber's successor in Trinidad, Dr. Marcy Bowers. Bowers wrote the afterword for your book, and she has some tough words about your choice of people to profile. I'm quoting here. Martin J. Smith's Going to Trinidad, while beautifully written and well-researched, focuses narrowly on two individuals whose experience may cast doubt on the validity and accuracy of the gender transition process. The described characters are atypical, expressing an unusual degree of uncertainty in their respective gender transitions. Well, you know, keep in mind, I invited Marcy to write that afterward because I wanted this to be a conversation. I don't pretend to speak for the trans community. She's got much more authority in that world than I did. And I knew, and I quote her in the book, as well as others like transgender historian Susan Stryker, responding to Walt Heyer and explaining why his science is wrong and explaining why his conclusions are wrong. So I spent a lot of time, you know, not just addressing the issues that Walt Heyer raised, but letting people who are far more credible than I am make those points. Uh, and, and, and that's how I invited Marcy Bowers to write her afterward. I, I encouraged it and I'm, I'm supportive of that conversation because I want this book, if nothing else, to be a conversation starter. Well, Marty, I want to thank you so much for sharing your book with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Martin Smith wrote Going to Trinidad, a doctor, a Colorado town, and stories from an unlikely gender crossroads. He lives near Granby. Now let's hear from Biber's successor in Trinidad, Dr. Marcy Bowers. She's the first transgender person to perform gender confirmation surgery and now heads of medical practice in California. I asked her how she met Biber. I met him in, on May 25th, 2000, on the actual day that he was on the cover of the USA Today. Uh, and I think the headline was like small town 
uh, doctor, you know, whatever, uh, sex change, da, 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 da. It was the USA Today. So I think, uh, I think those were the headlines. And how did you come to meet him on the day that they ran those? Well, I had had um, some friends who worked in the uh, patient counseling industry in Seattle, and uh, they had described this legendary doctor working in this small town in Colorado and uh, how he'd taken care of thousands of patients and uh, that I I need to meet him. Uh, at the time, of course, I wasn't uh, I wasn't performing surgery, but I was beginning to take care of a number of transgender patients because I too had gone through the process less than a couple of years earlier. Talk to me more about the people who came to you in the early two thousands, because even twenty years ago, transgender people faced more stigma. Can you give me a sense of what life was like for your patients before they came to Trinidad? You know, it was uh, in the last half of the 20th century, and and when I started in 2003, it was um, really a lonely journey for the most part for transgender patients. Even Dr. Biber's emergence um, was a result of a major institution, Johns Hopkins, closing its doors um, kind of as they had used a, a bit of junk science to defend their idea that, you know, people were really no happier, which belies everything historically. So if, as patients arrived, the stereotype was there was a, a you know, Greyhound bus and a cloud of dust, basically, you know, Trinidad was <laughs> not exactly um, on the, the, the main highway. It isn't someplace that, that people just, um, just stop. It certainly wasn't Broadway in New York City. And, uh, but for trans patients, you know, it was really kind of the the Nazareth of, of the movement. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Martin Smith's book, Going to Trinidad. It focuses on two of Biber's patients, Claudine Griggs and Walt Heyer. Griggs told the author that she remained sad about her life before surgery and that she suffered from depression both before and after, but that she would choose surgery again. Heyer, though, returned to life as a man and founded a group called the Sex Change Regret Movement. You wrote an afterword to Smith's book and criticized him for choosing those people. Would you read a portion of that afterward for us? Uh, so, Martin J. Smith's Going to Trinidad, while beautifully written and well-researched, focuses narrowly on two individuals who experience may cast doubt on the validity and accuracy of the gender transition process. The described characters are atypical, expressing an unusual degree of uncertainty in their respective gender transitions compared to most who transition and the many who go to Trinidad. I think it really does capture a lot of my feelings um, because, uh, you know, if you go, let's go before people were having this opportunity to actually change gender during their one act play (laughs) uh, called life. You know, we, I grew up knowing very masculine women, effeminate men, they were kind of in a gender cage. Based on your biology at birth, you're put in these gender cages and you can never get out. And it, it's so hard because you go through a life of, you know, being marginalized, being mistreated, being bullied in many cases. You take a woman like that and you give her testosterone and you allow her to live as a man and they just flourish. I mean, 
to be able to live an opposite life is just so joyful that there's no way people ever go back. They, you know, the, that Walt Heyer is picked is really ironic because I've been debating Walt Heyer for 20 some years. Uh, it's the same old story. And there's not like there is a whole bunch of people like him. Um, and furthermore, if you read his account in the book, you can see he's someone who was a transgender woman. Um, he chooses to blame the medical establishment and his providers as misdiagnosing him. What's never talked about is the aspect of personal responsibility in making big life choices. And changing gender is a big life choice. So, you know, that's the, that's the gist of my disappointment is that it really, the book could have captured a more typical and, and successful story. It is not an easy process. And so no one's ever making that claim, but that it is a joy-filled one for many people. I would say overall, it's joy-filled. I mean, there is no question there is uh, depression um, that can accompany this. Uh, there's a lot of discrimination. Uh, what I think is remarkable is that the regret rate isn't higher. So I wonder about your main concern. Is it that the effect Smith's book could have on someone who's considering surgery, that they might be discouraged? Or are you more concerned that Smith's book could give people outside the transgender community an inaccurate perception of transgender health care? I realize those concerns are not mutually exclusive. I don't think uh, you're going to deter someone from making a decision to go through this because it is just an unstoppable feeling. The drive to, to do this is just so profound especially now that we're actually recognizing that like everything else in nature, gender identity is, is punctuated by diversity. Um, but, the, but the issue I really have or the concern I have is that uh, this adds fuel to the people that think that there's some big rate of regret and that we're doing something that's so harmful and permanent to a person that they're disfigured by surgery and um, like this is a big deal thing. Uh, there are already lots and lots of uh, attempts uh, in parts of the country to stop any kind of treatment for let's say uh, adolescent children to be able to be treated. And uh, it's very clear that, that these, these treatments are life-saving. Um, there was a study done not long ago that showed that 42% of, of transgender adolescents had at one point attempted or considered suicide. Uh, it's, it's profound. And we don't know how many we lose. And something that you've highlighted as we've been talking is just that things have been changing. Over the last couple of decades, as you've performed thousands of gender confirmation surgeries, how have things changed for people who come to you? Yes, well, that's right. And, uh, you know, again, Walt Heyer and uh, Ms. Griggs had their surgery in the early 1990s when you would probably say that the surgery was quite a bit more rudimentary than it is today. Um, and uh, so uh, besides the technical aspects and improvements in the surgery, there's, there's been a, a quite a social movement. Uh, but again, this, this 
uh, just follows with what nature would really prescribe for the future. And that is that nowhere else in nature are choices defined uh, by only uh, two polar opposites, male and female. You know, it just doesn't make sense that that is how the world would function. And you talked earlier about the people sort of coming on the Greyhound bus in a cloud of dust. Do your patients have more support now from friends and family? Generally speaking, of course, everyone's situation is different. For sure. Today, uh, people come with the partners and fiancés and um, loved ones. And it's become not the lonely experience it used to be when I first started in Trinidad. Does that change your experience as a doctor when people come with that kind of support? Yeah, it, it gives me a lot of hope that people are going to do better afterwards. And, uh, you know, again, these kind of rudderless uh, life histories like like Mr. Hire, you know, you're, you're just I think you're less likely to see that today because people are anchored in in personal support that they already have in place. So. I guess it's, you know, I think generally as difficult as it is, sometimes it is getting better. And we do know that there are difficulties and the human rights campaign reports a record number last year of fatal incidents against transgender or gender nonconforming people, 44 deaths and at least 21 fatalities so far this year already. Do you have a sense of why violence may be rising or what we what people can do to stop it. Yeah, it's really, I've been unfortunately um, asked in certain court cases to comment on certain uh, really, really horrific crimes that are committed against uh, this population. And, you know, it just, it really makes me shudder. Uh, as far as we've come, it's still a, a world that doesn't understand. You know, we, we have to explain to people what this is all about. And that's why even a book like Martin Smith's, you know, it isn't the perfect book, perhaps. Uh, it does explain a very real story. And it shows the struggle that people uh, engage in when they, when they go through such a thing. Marcy, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. It's, it's always great to be here. <laughs> Dr. Marcy Bowers leads a medical practice in California where she performs gender confirmation surgeries. She also serves as president-elect of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. We heard earlier from Colorado author Martin Smith, whose new book is Going to Trinidad, a doctor, a Colorado town, and stories from an unlikely gender crossroads. <laughs> In the weeks and months ahead, more and more businesses will be welcoming back workers in office spaces. But how that comes together is still a big question. Some companies are considering hybrid models where employees continue to work part of their week at home. Others are looking at a full-time return to the office. CPR's business reporter Sarah Mulholland is committed to telling the stories of this return to the workspace. She'd like to hear from you if you are one of the many people who will be heading back to the office. What is on your mind? Are you feeling confident, concerned, or somewhere in between? 
Email us, coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. Or leave a voice message and we might use it on air. That number is 303-871-9191, extension 4480. That's 303-871-9191, extension 4480. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 